Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Untangling Transportation. I am Ron Brooks, your uh, call facilitator for this evening, and I'd like to welcome all of you, uh, whether you are in Zoom, whether you are coming through Clubhouse, or you are listening on ACB Media. Uh, we are going to uh, be talking about a topic that has come up for uh, for our, our listeners on a regular basis. People have asked us to talk about it, and so that is exactly what we're doing. Before we dive into that. I'd like to acknowledge some folks who are helping me with the call. Uh, first, we have uh, Travis Butler, who is our uh, ACB host. Uh, thank you for your efforts. Uh, we have Kyla, who is connecting us over in Clubhouse. Uh, and we have Herbie, who is streaming for us on ACB Media. So folks, thank you for your uh, help to make these calls possible. Uh, makes my job as the, uh, as the moderator of the call really, really easy. So thank you for that. So I'd like to just jump right in and start with saying that this is one of those topics that we we always want to talk about paratransit because it is the uh, it, it's a service that up, up until 30 years ago in many places didn't exist. It's a service that many of us use now on a regular basis. Uh, it looks and feels a little different depending on where you are in the country. Uh, some I think in some places it runs pretty well, in other places, not so much. And people have a lot of questions because it's complicated, lots of rules, lots of regulations. And nowhere is that more true than in the area of eligibility certification. If you have taken paratransit in our country, you have had to go through a certification process that might have involved a piece of paper or several pieces of paper. It might have involved an interview by phone or in person. It might have involved going to a doctor or some other medical professional to get forms filled out. It might have involved a trip to a, a tr to your transit agency, either to a, a mock environment like with fake buses and fake bus stops and all that kind of stuff, or maybe actually out in the real system with real buses. And in some cases, you might have done all of those things. So one of the questions that comes up is, why is it like that? Why is it so different? Why is it so tricky? Why is it so bureaucratic? Why does it take so long? Another question that comes up is, is why do I have to go through it every three to five years, depending on where I live? So we're going to be talking about all those things tonight. That's really what this call is about. We called it Untangling Transportation. Sign me up. because. Most of us at some point are probably going to find some value in having eligibility for paratransit, and you got to sign up to get it. So that's what we're going to talk about. Before we do, I want to just walk you through the flow of this call. A couple things that are a little different. One, I don't have a speaker this evening other than me. So uh, if you came to hear somebody who is uh, has an amazing voice and who is incredibly interesting and engaging, uh, let me know how that turned out for you at the end. Uh, be kind. And the other thing I wanted to tell you is that we're doing something a little different. As these calls have gotten larger, uh, we decided that we were having, it was getting challenging to manage all of the muting and unmuting. 
So we're going to keep everybody muted until it's time. And when you want to speak, you'll have lots of opportunity, I promise. Raise your hand. When you're recognized, you'll get an invitation to unmute from Travis, our host, uh, or from uh, Kyla over in Clubhouse. And once you're able to unmute, you can unmute, and then you can speak and then go back on mute, and we'll just keep going. So uh, just a couple of little different things. Also, I want to let you know that these calls, that as you know, they're recorded. You had to click that little got it button um, if you're on Zoom. And the reason they're recorded is they're podcast. So if you want to listen later, if you have other people that want to listen and they couldn't be here this evening, these shows, all of them, this one and all the others that we've done, are archived on the ACB Media website. You can simply go to the ACB Media podcast site once you get to that site. And I actually don't know the address off the top of my head, but it's in the call notes every time we do a call. Uh, once you get there, you type untangling transportation in the search <clears throat> bar, you hit enter, and you will be taken to the most recent episode. And you can check out all the episodes they list uh, from most recent to oldest, top to bottom. Uh, and I invite you to check it out. We've had some really fun conversations over the last year, uh, including conversations around autonomous vehicles, uh, conversations about technology to get to and from transit. Uh, we've talked about Uber and Lyft, and we've talked about all kinds of things. So uh, definitely worth your while if you're interested in transportation to go check that out. So let me just start and talk about why uh, I, I talked a little bit about why paratransit eligibility. Let me just kind of set the stage a little bit that and about that, and then I want to talk about kind of why why I'm making this presentation and why I, I'm not having somebody else do it. Uh, and then uh, I want to talk about uh, a circular, a, a law that was written and updated in 2015 that really. Uh, will form the basis for a lot of the conversation. Then I'm going to walk through this, this, these rules around eligibility and why it works the way it does. And we're going to stop a lot along the way. If you have questions, if you have uh, comments around how maybe your agency does things, we're going to try to stay out of too much of the personal stories. But the thing with paratransit eligibility is it is a personal story because every agency does it differently. So I must need a little bit of that just to answer questions. But we're going to get into that. You're going to have lots of opportunities to ask your questions. Uh, this is a chance, I hope, uh, that you'll be able to take to really learn a little bit about why it is the way it is and how you can manage it uh, so that you can get the paratransit that you need with the minimal amount of muss and fuss. We will do that for about the next little bit over an hour and, and 10 minutes or so. Uh, and then we'll wrap it up. and be on your way. So, so let me just talk a little bit about, about paratransit in terms of why, why this issue is the way it is. And I said this, it, this was written in the call announcement. Paratransit, the service is federally mandated service. The Americans with Disabilities Act adopted in 1990, came into enforcement in 1992 for public transportation, created the requirement to do paratransit, door-to-door -door service or, or curb-to-curb, depending on where you are, for people with disabilities who are not able to use conventional public transportation. So that would be like bus, light rail, streetcar, um, for some or all of their trips. 
the idea is there's a safety net for people that can't use buses and trains, and it's called paratransit. The ADA established rules, which we're going to talk about, for who is eligible for ADA paratransit. But it also left all of the decision making for how the eligibility process works to each local transit agency. Now, there were some requirements that they had to meet, but basically the process was theirs to design with public input. And back in 1992, I was just starting my career in the industry. I was, I was really young. Um, the agencies really did that. They took it pretty seriously. They, they got a lot of public input. They followed the process and they all came up with these eligibility processes. They all look different because every community is a little bit different. Over time, there's, there have been some patterns that have emerged, certain practices that seem to work well and they get copied by other agencies. But a couple of things have happened. Public involvement has, has decreased around how eligibility processes work. Agencies aren't required anymore to submit annual updates to, to the Federal Transit Administration like they used to be. So now transit agencies regularly update their processes to be more effective and they often will inform the community, but they don't always engage the community. So people don't really know. They just show up and it's like, oh, this looks totally different than the last time. I don't, what happened here? So you have several hundred transit agencies around the country. The number's in the high hundreds. It's a lot. They all do it different. And that's why paratransit eligibility looks and feels different no matter where you are. So that's really why we're talking about it, because it's one of those topics that you can't learn it once and know it because it changes. So let me just talk a little bit about my experience in paratransit. Uh, I began my career in 1993 working for the Bay Area Tran Rapid Transit District in BART, uh, BART in San Francisco, California. And one of my first jobs in 1994 was helping BART establish its first ever ADA paratransit eligibility certification process. We were part of a regional system there. There were nine counties around San Francisco that agreed to work together on a regional eligibility process. And I was responsible for helping BART, the agency that I worked for, participate in that regional process. Um, I actually found it very interesting because there were 23, it's, it's actually a bigger number now, but 23 transit agencies in the Bay Area all trying to agree on one thing, how to do this process. And as you can imagine, if you put 23 bureaucrats in one room, you're not gonna get much agreement. And it was, uh, it was definitely sausage making at its finest. From BART, I ended up in South Florida and Palm Beach County. And again, I was supervising eligibility for paratransit along with the rest of the paratransit there. And we redid the process. We hired a consultant, we brought them in, changed the whole process. Later in my life, all the way up to 2013, I came to Valley Metro in Phoenix, Arizona, the transit agency here. Worked here for three years overseeing a bunch of stuff around paratransit, including paratransit eligibility. And we ran that process. And, and during about halfway through my time, we re-engineered the entire process. So I've had a lot of experience with paratransit eligibility throughout my career. 
Uh, I train on this topic in the industry, so industry professionals and peers. I do provide training in this topic. What you are going to get tonight, I promise you, is as good as anything that 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 most of the folks in my industry can get right now. And that will either tell you that I'm amazing or it will tell you how bad things really have gotten in the transit industry. You'll have to decide that for yourself. So what I wanna do is talk through a document that the Federal Transit Administration issued in 2015. So 2015 was the 25th year anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the Federal Transit Administration issued a document called a circular. And what a circular is, is it's basically a document that clarifies federal regulation. So you have a law like the ADA, which is actually not super long, but it has a lot of detail. The circular takes that relatively short piece of legislation and it breaks it down into inf infinitely tessimally small detail and explains in great detail how agencies or whoever's covered by the law are supposed to follow the law. And the circular that the Federal Transit Administration published, and we will link this in the call notes, is a 306-page, not including attachments, document that breaks down every piece of public transit requirements under the ADA. So it talks about building new train stations, building new bus uh, transit facilities, vehicles, bus operations, paratransit operations, other types of services like shuttles and such. And there's an entire chapter, 30 pages or so, dedicated to the eligibility, <clears throat> excuse me, the eligibility process for paratransit. So what I'm going to do is walk you through those pages to talk to you about why, about what the industry is being told by the federal government who regulates that industry. These are the people at the Federal Transit Administration who, who fund much of what public transit does. They are the people who oversee whether or not the industry is complying with the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Civil Rights Act, and other laws that, that govern the industry. Their word in our industry is quite literally law. So, I'm going to walk you through what they do and what they say about eligibility. And I think what you'll find is that it makes the things that your agency in the city or town where you live, it makes them more logical. But you may also see that it makes it, it points to areas where your agency and your community may not be doing things quite right. And there may be some opportunities to have conversations with your agency about areas where they might need to improve things. So, so we'll dive into that. And I'm going to stop fairly often for questions and comments because it is a detailed topic. So let's start with the basics. The chapter on eligibility, I said it was basically 30 pages. There's really about 12 subjects that it addresses. And I'm going to walk you through each of them. Um, first off, 
the very first thing is, is the law is very clear about establishing who is eligible for paratransit. And, and this is important because I think some people think that agencies kind of make this stuff up. The law is actually real specific. Uh, eligibility is based on a functional ability to use public transportation. So there are agencies are not allowed to use a medical definition, and many of them do. A lot of agencies will, will take a person's diagnosis and they will say that person's either eligible or not eligible. And that's not really appropriate. What the, what the Federal Transit Administration wants transit agencies to do is to assess every person based on how their disability or disabilities, plural, affect their, that person's ability to navigate to, to, to board, ride, and exit public transportation independently. So, so that's it. It's, it's not, so if you have glaucoma, it doesn't mean you're automatically eligible. Now it's, it's highly likely that just about everybody who has glaucoma is probably eligible sometimes, but glaucoma in and of itself does not make you eligible. If you are riding around in a mobility device, like a wheelchair, you are not automatically eligible based on the fact that you're in a wheelchair. What you are probably eligible for is, is how you are able to use or not use public transit because you use a wheelchair. And that's an important distinction because some people with the same condition, the same disability, the same health condition might be able to use public transit, whereas others might not be able to use public transportation. And that's important because because, it, because it's not about your medical diagnosis, it's about how that diagnosis or how that health condition impacts your ability to use the bus or the train. So there are three eligibility categories that the, FT, that the FTA and the ADA established. Uh, the three conditions are based on three different things and you'll hear this referred to, I don't like to use these. Like when I'm talking to customers, I rarely get into this, but You'll hear people talk about category one, category two, category three. And, and really what it basically comes down to is this. If you are unable because of, your, because of the nature of your disability to use public transit, no matter how accessible it is, that's kind of, that's called category one. So for example, if you are a person who has dementia, or if you have a family member who has dementia and they're not able to safely be out on their own, that person's deaf, even if you have a perfectly accessible transit system, they probably are not able to use it independently. They're automatically eligible under what's called category one. Category two says you can use accessible public transit, but public transit's not accessible. And this is a category that was very important in the early 1990s when there were lots of parts of the country that didn't have very good accessibility on their buses or their trains. Nowadays, you don't hear it too much. Um, but there could be a situation where if you have a, uh, a disability 
that you can use public transit, but the but the transportation is not accessible because let's say you need a ramp and the bus doesn't have a ramp, doesn't happen often, uh, but it could happen sometimes, then you would be eligible under category two. Category three is the other one. And this is the one that I think applies to most blind people. You are able to use public transit, but it's impossible to safely get to or from the transit stop. Um, and it might not just be the one by your home. It could be the one, it could be any transit stop because eligibility is based on your use of a system, not of a particular bus route. So category three is really important. If you are unable because there is a six lane street crossing with very uh, difficult to predict traffic and no audible accessible pedestrian signal, uh, that is a category three type of eligibility condition. Because what you're saying is, yeah, I could use public transit, but I can't navigate to it or from it. Um, and when we get into talking about eligibility assessments, it's really important to know why you're not able to use public transit and to be able to speak to it. Because being able to speak to the reasons that it doesn't work for you helps the people who are making those decisions make them in a way um, that, that guarantees you access to the paratransit if you think you need it. Paratransit can be permanent or temporary. And when I say permanent, I don't actually mean permanent. What I mean is permanent as per the rules of the program. And so most programs will give you eligibility for three to five years if you're permanently eligible, at which point then you have to come back and get recertified, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Temporary just means that your disability is likely to change, uh, typically get better. Like let's say you've had knee surgery or let's say you're a normally sighted person, but you had cataract surgery and you're expected to make a full recovery, those folks might qualify for temporary eligibility. Eligibility can be conditional or unconditional. And what that means is that unconditional means that we think that there are, we don't believe as an industry that there are times when you would ever really be able to use public transportation on your own. So we give you unconditional, also called unrestricted eligibility. Conditional means we think there are times when you can use the bus or the train, and there are other times when we think that you, that you cannot and maybe you need paratransit. In point of fact, most transit agencies who give conditional eligibility do not have the ability with the data that they possess to enforce it. So. As a practical matter, most people who get conditional eligibility can use it anytime they want because most transit agencies are not very careful about restricting people to what their conditions actually are. Uh, just a couple more points and then we'll stop for a question uh, or comments. Eligibility must be based on, uh, on a current, on, on your current level of ability. So, and, and I've, I've heard this from people before. Let's say you're a blind person and you are just going through a rehab program to, to develop your um, you know, alternative uh, techniques to manage blindness. And you apply for paratransit because you're, you're just starting to learn your cane travel and you're just starting to learn how to navigate in your neighborhood and you really don't have the ability at this point to use the bus or the train effectively. 
So you apply for paratransit. The eligibility has to be based on where you are today. It cannot be based on where the agency thinks you'll be after you finish your training. They, they have to look at you how you are today. They can't say something like, well, I see you're in training, so, so you're not eligible because the training is going to teach you how to use our system. They can't do that. They have to give you eligibility based on where you sit today. They can limit it to a year or six months or two years or whatever they think uh, your training is going to take. And by the way, I don't like this. I'm just telling you what the law actually says. Um, but they have to look at how you are sitting today. Um, last thing, some of you may have reduced fare eligibility for your for your bus or train system. Uh, it, that program has been around since the 70s. Um, it is not a trigger for eligibility for paratransit. Half fare eligibility is based on being a senior or it's based on having a disability, but it's not a very, typically in most agencies, it's a pretty, it's not rigorous. You basically demonstrate with paperwork that you qualify for a program or you're 65 or older, they give you the discount and they go and you go on your way. Those eligibility processes are not considered sufficient to meet the ADA requirement for an eligibility process. So if you have a half fare, you still have to go do eligibility for paratransit. Let me stop there, take a drink of water and see if anybody has any questions. We do have a couple hands here. And the first one will be David. You may now unmute. Oh. Try asking you again. All right, Ray. There, I, I think okay. I'm in. I'm in now. Yes. yes. Took, yeah, you're good. Took me a few, few for finger flicks. Uh, thank you, Ron. Always uh, interesting the things you have to say. So, um, so I'm from Massachusetts, Boston area, and of course we uh, negotiate quite a bit with the uh, with the MBTA, the uh, Paratransit mm -hmm. for the Boston area. One thing that we'd like to argue for is like. Uh, we understand how, you know, every three, five years, you know, you do have to re-up your eligibility. That's the law. Um, but it would be nice. It would make a lot of sense to me, just sheer common sense, to have the ability to have a lot more people having like an expedited process. Mm -hmm. um, I know you said it isn't about physical condition, but I'm, I suppose I would fall into that category three. Um, and I'm blind now. I'm going to be blind three years from now, five years from now. 99.9% .9 of you know people with visual disabilities, mm -hmm. their situation is not going to get better. It will, if anything, it will get worse. So right. my my okay. question is, um, are there any legal reasons why there can't be um, more people to have like an expedited eligibility process? Because I sense great yeah. reticence for the MBTA to do something like that. So I'll come back to this later, but I will. Here's the short answer. Not only is it legal, it is encouraged within this same document. Um, we actually, the if you um, look at this document, when you get down, I think it's section nine point six. Um, it's a long document, but um, there is actually a section called recertification 
And one of the practices that is called out as a good optional practice, it's not required, is to create expedited eligibility screening for people whose disabilities don't change over time. So no reason not to. Okay. Would, would the reasons why they're sort of not wanting to do it, is it more political? It's like it creates employment for unnecessary paperwork. But why, why would people <laughs> not want to do it? You would think it would be a win-win for everybody. Uh, you know, I, I, my guess, and I don't know, but my guess is the larger the agency, and, and I'm going to just say the more coastal the agency, um, the more concern there might be around questions of equity and fairness and a concern that if you create a, a, a convenient process for some customers, it, it, it harms customers who don't get to take advantage of it. Um, I think it's, I mean, it's specious, but I think that is probably the play here is let's have the same crappy process for everybody because then at least <laughs> it's fair. Um, but no, it is not a requirement. Um, and in fact, the FTA points out directly that it is a good optional practice to expedite eligibility for those who don't need, um, who, whose disabilities don't change over time. Next question, okay. please. All right, next will be Ray. There we go. There it's first it said it was first it said it was not allowing me to unmute there. I was like, whoa. Um, yeah, we have the call okay. set up that way tonight. Okay, no problem. Uh, great, Travis. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so just a couple quick things. And uh, Ron and I have had many discussions about paratransit eligibility over the years. But um, um, I'll just say uh, two things. One, uh, Chicago started when we were living up there, they started doing the expedited. If you got full eligibility a certain number of times, they would, the next time you recertify, you could just mail in the application as long as things didn't change. They didn't do anything uh, different. Um, I can't emphasize enough something that Ron said, your ability to be able, especially if you're in that category three, to be able to speak to how the environment affects your ability to use paratransit or public transit, because um, like in Chicago, for example, they use an interview process where you fill out an application and you go in for an interview. And it's real important that you be able to tell that person that's interviewing you and evaluating you, hey, yes, I could use public transit if I had good sidewalks to get to bus stops, I had accessible signals. You really need to be able to speak to those things because that will can mean the difference between you not getting an eligible getting uh, paratransit and maybe getting a conditional. And Ron's right, conditionals are almost like full eligibilities because nobody evaluates those uh, restricted, uh, you know, the, the conditions. And I mean, I'm living proof of that. So um, very, very important to really think about how when you're answering those questions, how the environment affects your ability to use public transit. Uh, thank you. Yep. And I just want to say, Ray, and, uh, and to take the positive, because I actually do believe in the spirit of the ADA, which is you know, the, the whole intention of the ADA was to provide service in the least, in, in the most integrated option that's appropriate. 
I personally as philosophically believe that we as blind people, when we are able, we should be able to use public transportation. I don't have to book ahead. I don't have to pay extra. I don't have to negotiate my pickup time. There's a lot of advantages. I'd like to think that if we are talking to our agency collectively, not one person, one person doesn't matter. Okay. I mean, does, but not, not in the big picture, but over the big picture, if everybody is saying, Hey, we could use the buses. If you guys had better, if the bus stops were easier for us to find, we could use the buses. If there were accessible pedestrian signals at all the lighted intersections, I'd like to think that over time, an agency, and these people are not out to harm anybody. They have very tight budgets. They don't have enough money. But paratransit's super expensive for them to provide. I mean, if you pay right now the average, average paratransit fare in the country, based on kind of data right now, is about $45 a trip. You pay or I pay it varies from city to city, but let's say it's about $3 a trip. Taxpayers are subsidizing the rest. It is extremely expensive service to, for the agency to provide. I think we as citizens have a duty to try to use services that, that we can use when they work, but it's up to our policy makers and transit agencies to make investments so that we can. And I think if we can encourage them by collectively saying, you know, if we had accessible pedestrian signals and if we had better sidewalks and if we had safer street crossings and if we had better, you know, easier time finding the bus stops, those start to look like pretty good investments. So it's it does two things. One, it helps you get the service you need. And two, it helps document the fact that there's a whole lot of people riding paratransit who probably don't need to be except for the fact that we haven't fixed all the broken accessibility in our communities. So maybe we should fix that. So any other questions? Yes, you have a phone number 408 ending in 139. All right, we'll take this and then we're gonna keep rolling and because we'll have more time for questions. Go ahead. Okay, I did send him an unmute request. send them a request again one more and then we'll see if if we have anybody in clubhouse and if not we'll keep going all right we have okay and we have one more person here okay let's take one and then let's go five zero Hello? eight oh there you are um i'm sorry i was pressing the wrong numbers <laughs> okay no problem go for it and and where are you from my name is Luffy medrano from san jose california I've right, known Roger Peterson, known Roger Peterson for a long time. But anyways, I have retinitis pigmentosa. I started losing my sight back in 1996. It took about 20 years for me to but to lose it all. And the one problem I had towards the end was my spatial awareness. I got lost quite a few times getting off the bus, and that mm -hmm. told me I could not use the bus anymore because I was getting lost. But yep. I did use the bus system for over 20 years, uh -huh. and so it's gotten to the point where I can't use public transportation for. For, you know, for quite a few years already, so I use paratransit only. Mm -hmm. But now, my um, my biggest concern right now about paratransit is the fact that we have to live three quarters of a mile away from a bus stop in order to get services. 
and only and when the buses are running. And yes, so I wanted to know about that, if that is true. Does the ADA stipulate that only when the buses are running, we get paratransit services? Yes, that is correct. The ADA, and let me just, uh, first off, I have my own opinions personally about, about the goodness or the badness of that. I would like to see paratransit more available. However, the ADA is a civil rights law. As a civil rights law, what the ADA seeks to do is it seeks to create equity or equality between disabled people and non-disabled people. And the standard that the ADA uses for paratransit is what we refer to as fixed route transit. So the expectation is that because fixed route, bus, rail, paratransit, is not accessible, we as a society provide paratransit so that the people who should be able to use it but can't are able to use paratransit instead. So it is a, it's a one-for-one deal. It's available when and where public transit operates. And that is exactly how the law is written. Now there's now, you know, that's what the law says. I, th- I would like to think that someday we will go beyond that, but that's going to take either a legal change at the federal level, which I don't believe will ever happen, in the, in at least not soon, or it's going to cha- take a change at the local or state level. So that's, an, that's a conversation we don't have time to get into tonight. It's not really right. what we're here for, but it is. But that's the answer to your question. It is the law currently. Um, I just have what I have just one more statement please. quickly and then I want to go forward. Okay. Is it legal for an, um, a transportation agency to move a bus stop just a little bit out of the three quarter mile distance in order to charge $16 instead of the $4 per transit customers were paying for years? Yep. Let me just go ahead and answer that. And then we're going to keep going. Um, the answer is the ADA does not speak to whether or not a transit agency moves bus stops. They are certainly allowed to redesign their service. The only thing the ADA does is that it requires when you have public transit operating, paratransit must be available. The fact that your region provides paratransit even at a much higher cost in other areas and at other times, that's not required by law. They are doing that um, because they choose to do it. They're not required to do it at all. So um, no, they, they're they're certainly allowed to move their bus routes uh, around if they so choose. Okay. Wow. Yeah, let's, yep. Okay, let's keep going. Um, so I want to talk about the types of eligibility. Oh, actually, we talked about the types of eligibility. Uh, we talked about unconditional and all that good stuff. We talked about conditional. Uh, we talked about temporary. I'm just looking at my notes. It should appear to be a little bit redundant. Um, I was I was I was writing down notes from a federal statute. Imagine it was redundant. Um, okay, let's talk about the eligibility decision process. Okay, so this now starts to get a little bit into why things look so darn different depending on where you are in the country. So the ADA, which is very specific about lots of things, is very unspecific about how local agencies make eligibility determinations. The law's only requirement is that the local agency establishes an eligibility certification process 
that meets some very minimal requirements around time, which we'll get to. Um, and they have to include input from the local disability community. And there's no specification for what that actually even means. So in some cases, you have transit agencies who have advisory groups that, that meet and that advise staff or advise the board on policy decisions. So there's kind of a built-in mechanism to get community input. In other cases, transit agencies will simply create a process, they'll hold a public hearing. If you were fortunate enough to know about the public hearing and, and show up or make comments or send in comments or dial in on Zoom if they did that, then you get to participate and that's it. Um, there's, no, there's no expectation for what public input looks like other than that it has to be comparable to the public input they do for other projects. So if you have an agency like, um, and I'll use, uh, I'll use uh, MBTA as an example. The MBTA does a lot of things wrong, but they also, they actually do a pretty good job with public input. It's very structured. They have people who go around the Boston area doing nothing but collecting public input. So for them, if they want to change something about their eligibility, they have to do the same thing for it that they do for their other uh, community engagement. Uh, other agencies, it's a little bit less rigorous, so it really varies by where you are. Um, so, so the other thing about eligibility is that decision, so here are some process requirements. It is strictly limited to people who need paratransit. The intention of ADA was that people would use bus, rail, public transportation when they are able, because there is a belief in the ADA that service is provided in the most integrated setting that's appropriate for the needs of the individual. So there was an expectation in the law that agencies be strict about eligibility. The fact is, is they're not that strict. Uh, they might be strict about the initial determination, but as Ray pointed out, and as I also said earlier, usually once you have eligibility, they're not that strict about enforcing it if it's conditional. So. So, but the intention is the paratransit really is for people who need a paratransit. But they can decide to do it however they want. There are about four basic processes that agencies use around the country to determine eligibility. Um, and, and these will sound very familiar, okay? So one of them is a simple application. Um, the customer basically fills out a piece of paper, answers some questions, send it in. The agency makes a decision. You're either eligible or you're conditional or you're not eligible. You have an appeal right if you if you choose, and that's it. That's it's a paper process. You never set foot in the agency. That's how most agencies started back in the early 90s. There are still many agencies, although probably not the majority, who still do that today. Just an application. Uh, some agencies require uh, documentation provided by um, a professional who's familiar with your disability. Often, but not always, that's a doctor. Uh, it could also be a rehab professional. It might be um, a, a rehab counselor. Uh, it might be um, a, a vision therapist. It could be you know anybody like that. Um, 
I, I've seen applications come in with a signature uh, from somebody from the Braille and Talking Book Library. Um, so it, it really depends on the agency, how strict they are. Uh, the FTA's guidance is to encourage agencies to accept professional verification from a broad range of professionals. Uh, basically, as long as they can demonstrate that they know about your disability and how it affects your use of transit, the FTA encourages but does not require that the agency accept those determinations. So that's the second process. So the first one was application. The second one was uh, a form by a medical professional. The third approach is a, it is a functional assessment. So a functional assessment is where you go somewhere to have your dis to, to basically go through kind of a of a of a mock test, if you will, where you're basically given tasks to complete that that either mirror or simulate the use of public transportation. Um, I, that's what we did in Phoenix. Every person came in. We had a we had a course set up in a building where we had a bus. Um, we actually had a real bus installed inside the building with a with a ramp. Uh, we had um, a street crossing with a with a um, uh, um, an audible Actually, it was not audible, which is really stupid. But I didn't do that. Uh, a non accessible pedestrian signal. Uh, we had sidewalks and curb cuts and the whole nine yards. And we would walk people around and let them walk around and see how they did. Um, and then we would take them outside on the streets around our office where it was louder where there was a lot of traffic, where there's a lot of noise um, and a lot of heat. And we would see how they did. And we would base our decision on whether or not they actually were able to do uh, the tasks associated with using public transit. Um, and then the last approach is really to mix all those up. Um, and, and many, many agencies use several. They might have an, they might have a, a, an application, they might have you fill out a, a one-page form with your doctor, and then they might ask you a few questions or have you come in. So processes can have any or all of those pieces tied to them. Um, the key from the federal government standpoint is that the assessment is based on your functional ability, not on a medical diagnosis. And I will tell you, there are a lot of agencies who slide into medical diagnosis um, because they get so hung up on the paperwork that they make decisions based more on the paperwork than they do on the rest of it. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on that because you could talk for hours about how different agencies do it. Uh, but if you have questions, we'll get to them. But just know that this process, this is why it can look different because there's so many different variations on how it gets done. A couple of good practices uh, that the FTA recommends. One I referred to earlier, if you're going to do professional verification, have lots of different types of professionals so you're not forcing people to try to get a doctor's appointment, go see a doctor. Um, another good practice is that the FTA recommends is for the community, like an advisory group or maybe a, a local ACB chapter, is to sit down with the transit agency and create a list of all the skills that, that, that are part of pu taking public transit and identify the kind of uh, challenges that people might have with those skills so that when people come in, you know, this kind of addresses Ray's question. You know, if there's a good list of skills that it takes to use public transportation, you could ask a customer or an applicant 
can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And it makes that it easier because you may not think of everything yourself, but but if you had a good O&M instructor and a few good experienced blind travelers and a couple of good people from the agency sitting together, they could come up with that list uh, and that it would be more consistent for everybody. So that's considered a good practice. Um, I've never seen an agency actually do that, but I'm sure somebody must um, because that's, you know, the FTA recommended it. Um, another practice is to focus on ability rather than disability. Um, and the way that works is, is to try to get the agency to talk to you about what you are able to do versus what you're not able to do. Um, so that's kind of looking at the back of the coin instead of the front of the coin. But um, the idea is that people are more willing to talk about what they're able to do. Uh, they might be embarrassed to talk about what they're not able to do. You might get a more accurate assessment of people's abilities if you ask them to explain what they are able to do. Um, just a couple more things on process and we'll stop again for questions. There is, this came up actually, one of you or someone on one of the calls wrote, actually reached out to us because their transit agency was requiring them to get an unreasonable amount of paperwork to prove that they had a disability. That is actually illegal. The FTA does not allow transit agencies to create unreasonable burdens or to create cost for people to apply for paratransit. Um, so if your agency is asking you for documentation about your disability that prevents you from using transit, that's considered okay. What's not okay is when they ask you for piles and piles and piles of medical records that they really don't need uh, to verify your eligibility. Um, and some agencies ask for an awful lot of detail and they really don't need it. Um, the other thing is, is if, if your agency is requiring you to take steps in the process that require you to spend money out of your pocket, that's not appropriate. The law is not specific about doctor's fees. Um, I wish that it was. Um, I believe that it's not appropriate uh, for the transit agency to force you to go to a doctor and pay a fee to get an appointment uh, and have the doctor fill out a form. Uh, but I don't believe it's been tested yet uh, in any kind of a court setting. Uh, if it has, I'm just not aware of it. Um, I don't, but I do know that nowadays it's really hard to get your doctor to sign anything without having to pay for it. So this one I think is an interesting. Um, I think it's a problem waiting to be discovered, uh, but but technically they're not supposed to create processes that that create cost. A uh, couple of things about decisions: they have to be communicated to you within 21 days uh, of the conclusion of the application, and that's a really interesting one because these agencies that require many steps to the eligibility process this process can drag out for quite a while. And that was not, the ADA didn't envision these, you know, it was written in 1990. So back in 1990, we weren't doing in-person assessments and all these kind of steps to the process. It was mostly application. So I don't think that the people who wrote the ADA envisioned all this, but I will tell you, if you're, and I know it's true, like I know a little bit about the RTA in Chicago, um, I know how it was when I was in Phoenix. Um, I know other agencies where it's the same. The idea was you turn in an application and you get your answer in 21 days. 
in some of these larger metropolitan areas, you might take it might take two weeks to get an appointment. You get you have to you have to go to the appointment, you have to go through that, and then it's 21 days from there. Here in Phoenix, you have to fill out an application before they'll even schedule the appointment. And you have to get a medical verification, and then you have to get the appointment, and then you go, and then they start the 21-day clock. Um, I think that at some point this will get tested, but uh, right now the law says 21 days, and I would say allow yourself about 60 days to get your eligibility certified, because reality says that's what's really happening in the world. Answers have to be provided to you in writing, and yes, they do have to be provided in an accessible format upon your request. It does not have to be the format you ask for, but it does have to be accessible to you. Um, with denials come appeals, and I'm going to stop. We'll talk about appeals in a minute, but I'm going to stop right there and just see if anybody has any questions. We do have a number of hands, and okay. let's check with Clubhouse to it. Kayla, let us know when you have somebody, if you do, and not hearing anything, we'll move to Terry. You may unmute. Send you another request. Hi, thank you for allowing me to unmute. <laughs> hey, Terry. Where are you at, Terry? Hi, how are you guys doing? Um, I just want to say this is a great call. Um, I am a sudden sight loss. Um, I had a very challenging time getting approval for my paratransit because in the state of Florida and in Lake County, they require financial documentation. And I originally was denied because when I was fully sighted, I was making six figures. And then that instantly changed when I became a non-driver and a non-bedside healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. So why do they ask for financial statements? All right, so, so Terry, um, I know a little bit about Florida. Florida is a little different. Has anybody ever said that before? Um, Florida As is a always. <laughs> and Florida is a little different. Um, are, what city in uh, Lake County are you in? Uh, Claremont, my new ADA um, coordinator is Bill Herndon, which I think you might know his name. I actually do. Um, and is there public, did you apply for ADA paratransit or did you apply for something called TD? I was recommended by my mobility instructor to do both. So I okay. applied for both. Okay. Under TD, TD is, is based on income. That is a state of Florida program. Um, now it's, it's run differently by each county in the state. You have 67 counties and no two counties in Florida can agree on the color of blue, let alone paratransit. So <laughs> that is true. so hey, true. I'm speaking truth. I used to work in Florida. Um, so Florida, it's, it's, it's state and it's county by county for TD. So, and it is needs based. ADA paratransit, however, is not needs-based and financial information is not something that they uh, should be asking for for ADA paratransit. So if they requested it for ADA paratransit, they broke the law. If they requested it for TD, they did not. Well, my challenge was, is I was making six figures, uh -huh. but when I became suddenly a non-driver yeah, and able to do that, 
But yep. then COVID yep. came and that bought me time. So that sure. was good. But bottom so, line is that's the, but that's the answer. And, and my guess is you had one application for both. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Okay. So you should still qualify for ADA. They, if they limited your eligibility to ADA based on income, that is a, that, I mean, that's something we could take that offline, but that is something that would, in my mind, would prompt an immediate um, appeal uh, and a complaint to the Federal Transit Administration because they can't do it. Um, my guess is, is that there was probably fine print somewhere in that application that said that economic data would only be used to determine TD eligibility, um, but it could have been very confusing. Well, especially since you can't read it. It wasn't accessible. My well, question, the other, yeah, they are required, by the way, to provide alternative formats. So anyway, keep going. And then let me uh, take one more from you and then keep going because you have a lot of hands. So. Oh, okay. Well, then yep. I will um, take no, it No, go ahead. Ask your, Thank ask, you. Okay, sure. Next. Thank you. Yep. All right. Next will be Renee. You may unmute. Yes. <clears throat> Thank you, Ron. Um, mm -hmm. My husband, uh, Tom Jones, and I, uh, we, uh, we live in a rural area in, in Illinois, and we do have what we call an everybody bus. And our main uh, concern is going from, from Mount Carmel, where we live, to Springfield, which is a main uh, town where mm -hmm. a lot of doctors are. So in other words, medically... Yep you can only get there on a Monday, Wednesday, or Friday. Yeah, I mean, Evansville. I don't know what I said. Okay. Yeah, Evansville. But um, um, you can't get there on a Tuesday or Thursday. They do it from other counties. If a program, if an if a area, rural area, doesn't have ADA or a, or, um, an, a bus, you know, like an every day during, during the weekday. Right, right. Is there anything that they need to do to start one or in, increase their service? So and the Rachel, reason why yeah. I say it's in everybody buses because we don't have a paratransit. That's right. Per yeah. Se. Yep. Yeah. So um, the, the short answer is um, that is, it, it's not, it's, I mean, we're not, this is not what we're talking about tonight. Um, okay. So ADA paratransit, eligibility is only for ADA paratransit and ADA paratransit is only required where there is local bus or light rail type service. So if you're in a community that doesn't have regular public transit, then there's no requirement for paratransit and thus no ADA requirement. Yeah, we do uh, have a no, local, yeah, we do have a local, yeah. a local bus does pick you up basically it is a door to door it is a local everybody bus right and but it doesn't run on a schedule there's a very uh, it, uh, let me just say this much and i want to move on because we're not talking mm -hmm. about this tonight um there is a very specific definition in the ada of mm -hmm. what is considered fixed route public transportation um a a a, a, a community circulator which is what you're describing does not meet that definition I'm not arguing that this is right or fair or good. No, and I understand. But legally, that. they are not required, and so this is not uh, something that that is really covered. Thank you, Ron. Sorry. Yep. Next. It is about eight o'clock. Just okay. let you know. And we're in excellent shape. Good. Yes, we are. Sue Ellen is next. One other thing I was going to ask. Oops. Okay, go to yep. Sue Ellen, I know oh, where you I'll are. Email him. Okay. Uh, 
Okay. Um, well, first off, I always said that Florida is another planet. Forget another country. <laughs> but um, what I was going to say, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, and I actually, 21 days to be notified about recertification is interesting, or sort of about a decision of eligibility is interesting. It took me about uh, a year before they let me know that I was recertified. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agencies don't always do a good job with the paperwork. Um, I hope you didn't lose transportation for all that time. No, in fact, it was actually funny because I'd, I, had, I hadn't realized that I needed to renew the, app, the, the transportation mm -hmm. until I went to hand my transportation ID, my proof of paratransit mm -hmm. eligibility, to my boss so that I could be put on the list to get free paratransit tickets, which was part of the only real benefit for a job. For my mm -hmm. job mm -hmm. but i did still have paratransit i and what i heard when i went back to other people was oh don't worry about it you um they uh half the time that they don't even pay attention to whether or not you're you've updated your id mm, yeah well you know louisville's had some challenges so anyway yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right uh next 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 person Next is Kayla, which makes me think maybe we have somebody in Clubhouse. We do. We have Lauren. You may unmute and ask your question. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I had a question. Um, I was living um, with my parents and was applying for um, paratransit and I never did it because COVID happened and then I, I moved, but um, the county application asked for um, Medicaid information for um, just paratransit ADA. And is that allowed? Because it seems unnecessary yeah, me, for them. It's to a do great that. question. So it is, it is, op they can ask it's optional. And the reason that some places do where are you at in the world? Um, this the was county. in Martin County, Florida. Okay. Ah, another Florida example. So yeah. in, in Florida, um, I lived in Palm Beach County, by the way. So I, I love the area. Um, oh, you're it, right it, next door. It, 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 I don't anymore, but it may be another planet, but it's a beautiful planet. So anyway, um, the reason that in Florida in particular, um, there is a requirement under state law in Florida for counties to coordinate transportation to the extent that they are able. So what a lot of agencies in Florida do is they will try to get people to give them information that they might be eligible for other programs so that the transit authority can bill third parties for the cost of the trip. If you remember, I said that if you paid like, and this is not, these aren't Martin County numbers, but if you pay $4, and the agency's cost is 45, they have a big unmet cost. And so mm -hmm. agencies will try to find out if you're eligible for other programs so they can bill those third parties to try to get some of that money back. So what I would say is it is legal to ask, but it would be optional information that you would not necessarily need to provide and, um, the and, and they would have to be clear that it's optional. Now, the one thing I don't know is Martin County, if Martin County has bus service, what I said is true. 
if Martin County is does not have bus service, then then it's under state law, and they they are certainly allowed to ask for that information. So so they do again, have bus service. It's, okay, then, it's then it has yeah. Then it's then it's probably optional, and hopefully they they designated it that way. Um, but yeah, typically under ADA, that you know you can't force people to disclose information that's not really required to determine your eligibility. Um, and if mm -hmm. you ask for more, you need to be clear that it's optional. So hope that helps. Oh, perfect. That's so good to know. Thank you so much. And this is a great uh -huh. call. Thanks. All right. Any other questions before we move on? May I take one more and then I'm going to keep going. All right. We have Mary. You may unmute. Hi, thank you, Ron. Um, I'm from Massachusetts. And um, I'm wondering if there is anything in the law talking about how um, transit authorities or, you know, public transportation needs to inform paratransit riders that their eligibility is coming up for renewal, if they're required to provide it in an accessible format? That's a great question. And I will tell you, because I don't just work here. Um, I eat the I eat the food. So <laughs> I'm a paratransit customer, too. And my eligibility expired. Um, or it was about to expire. And I had no idea because it's a five-year process. And they had changed the rules a little bit while I wasn't while I wasn't looking. Um, so so yeah, I think we all sort of wish that this process worked a little better because I think most of us have probably been surprised at some point. There is not a requirement that uh, that you be notified. However, there is an expectation. Well, there is a recommendation. So the FTA under good practices, under renewals, which I believe is, it's, it's definitely covered in the stat, in the uh, circular, they recommend agencies remind people so that their eligibility does not expire. Um, they also um, require, and this is a requirement folks, they're required to provide this information in an alternative format upon request um, actually, what they're required to do is make the information accessible, and that includes alternative formats upon request, ideally in the format requested by the individual, but at a minimum, it must be accessible to the individual. And I believe that this is an area where many agencies fail, um, maybe most agencies fail, and it's an area where ACB and local chapters and other organizations should really be thinking about, hey, you know, this is a problem for our members. You have a legal requirement to, to make your documentation accessible for the people that you're serving. And we want to see information in accessible formats. And you know, the, the, the law says it has to be accessible. It doesn't say how, but it does say it has to be accessible. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's helpful, but, but that's what they should be doing. They should, but don't have to tell you in, that it's expiring, but whatever they tell you, they need to be telling you in an accessible format. So let's, um, that's actually a really good segue to kind of continue on with uh, the rest of the process, because um, we're almost done. And then we'll have just a little bit more time for a couple more questions. Um, but let me just 
kind of jump in and talk about uh, uh, some of the stuff we've already talked about a little bit already. Um, first off, eligibility decisions. I said they have to be 21 days. They do have to be in an accessible format. Um, when an agency communicates your decision, um, you have the right to file an appeal. So if you disagree with the decision, you have a right up to 60 days after the, your decision has been communicated to you within which to file an appeal. And the appeal is basically that you disagree with the decision that the agency made. When you file, an, and there's the, the rules for how you file an appeal are set locally, but they have to communicate your right to you and they have to tell you how to file an appeal and they have to do so in an accessible format. Once you file that appeal, and in most cases it's a letter or an email, or um, you know, the, those are probably the two most common, you tell them basically, you know, my name is Mary, I live in you know, such and such address, I got my eligibility and I don't agree and here's why. That appeal has to be heard within a reasonable time frame of your filing it. Uh, that is interpreted. It's not covered in the statute. It was, I mean, honestly, it was kind of a mistake, I think. Um, but the FTA has has suggested that that's about 30 days. So within 30 days of your filing an appeal, they need to hold a hearing. And the hearing is a chance for you to speak to them as to why you disagree with the decision so that an appeals panel can hear that decision or hear that appeal and make a decision. There are no rules about the panel except for one. It cannot have anybody on it who was involved with your initial determination or who supervised the people who made your initial determination. And that's the only rule there is. So once that panel hears your uh, appeal, they have, um, they're expected to make a decision within 30 days. And that decision is final unless you go to court or something like that. So that right exists for anybody who gets an eligibility determination. Uh, obviously, if you get a determination that you're eligible and there's no restrictions, you wouldn't appeal. But if you get conditional eligibility, you can appeal those conditions. If you get denied eligibility, you can, you can appeal that. If you get temporary, you can appeal that. So, uh, and again, that information is supposed to be communicated at the time of your of your determination, and it's expected that it be provided in an accessible format if you've requested. So last topic I wanna to really dig into a little bit is recertification. We've already talked about some of recertification, so I wanna hit kind of the rest and just make sure we cover that. Um, agencies are allowed um, to establish a, a recertification timeframe. Typically it's three, to five years, depending on where you are. They are allowed and encouraged to offer expedited recertification for people whose disabilities aren't likely to change. Um, and let's face it, um, as somebody pointed out earlier, so blind people don't usually get, their vision doesn't usually get better. It only gets worse or stays the same. Um, and once you reach a certain age, um, I mean, unfortunately, because um, I think I might be there. Um, nothing seems to get better. It only gets worse. So, um, so once you know, th there's really no reason for people who are who are permanently disabled, and especially as they get a little older, 
to go through a full-blown certification. However, the agencies are not required to expedite. They are only encouraged to expedite. They are required to provide you with notice in an accessible format if they provide notice to the other customers. And they're encouraged to let people know in advance so people can get their certification without uh, the recertification without losing eligibility. And that's pretty much it as far as process. Uh, there's really, it's, it's, it's not a huge uh, set of rules around recertification. What I would say to you is in my experience, recertification tends to be a little bit informal in some agencies. If you as a local, if, if you in a local chapter feel that your transit agency is not, does not have a good recertification process, this is possibly an area where you can have an impact that's pretty, that might be a little bit easier. Because honestly, making people get recertified costs the agency money because they have to you know, administer a process. And in some cases, they have to bring people in uh, to go through an interview or an assessment. Those are almost always contracted services to a, to a private company or a nonprofit in the area. So the agency's paying for those. So this is an area where I think common sense says, let's have the recertification process be easy. And let's, because it does, because it creates a lot of costs for the agency and, and almost nobody is denied certification once they've been eligible. So this is an area where you might be able to have an impact on your eligibility process pretty easily. Last thing, just with eligibility, um, just two little odds and ends. Um, PCAs and companions. The um, companions are basically people that you just choose to bring along with you. That's not really covered by eligibility. The ADA requires a transit agency to allow you to bring at least one person with you, additional on a space available basis, just because you want to. So if you want to take, you want to meet a friend and go have lunch, you can use paratransit. They have to allow that. That person pays the same as you. Where eligibility does matter is around PCAs. If you need to have a person with you, you should tell them at the time that you are becoming eligible that you travel with a personal care attendant, even if you only use them occasionally for shopping trips. You want, to you want to clearly indicate that you need to have a PCA because if you do, then you can bring a person with you who can help you shop or help you run errands uh, or whatever. You can bring that person with you at no additional cost. So, so you definitely want to mention that you travel with the PCA if you, if you ever travel with the PCA. Last topic, visitor eligibility. Every person who is eligible for paratransit everywhere in the country whatsoever is entitled by law to travel in every place that has paratransit up to 21 days a year based on the eligibility that you have in your home city. How an agency manages that process is up to the agency, but the expectation is that uh, you are able to go to a city that's not your own city and use paratransit while you're there if you need to. I'll use myself as an example because I travel quite a bit. Um, I have been going to uh, Richmond, Virginia with some frequency. I live in Phoenix. I'm eligible for paratransit here in Phoenix. 
when I go to Richmond, um, I, I called the transit agency there. Um, they have to honor the fact that I'm eligible here. I proved, I gave them a copy of my certification letter. They put me into their system and I was able to use paratransit in Richmond uh, for 21 days uh, a year. Um, I also go to LA with some frequency and I tried to do the same thing, much more bureaucratic because LA is a lot bigger than Richmond, but the same rules. I'm able to use paratransit while I'm in the LA area based on my eligibility in Phoenix. So if you are eligible for paratransit and you wish to go somewhere and use the paratransit while you're in that city, I would encourage you to call ahead to the city that you're going to, talk to the transit agency there, find out what the rules are that they have, follow those rules and you should be able to use paratransit. If you live in a city that does not have paratransit, you are still able to get paratransit in a city that does for those 21 days as a visitor. You may be required to show documentation of your disability, but as long as you can demonstrate that you have a disability that, that prevents you from using public transit, you can use paratransit in any city in the country for up to 21 days, whether or not you are currently paratransit certified. And a lot of people don't know that because I don't think the industry does a very good job explaining it. But what I just said to you is right out of the statute. You can read it for yourself once I send the link with the rest of the call notes. Um, so I'm going to stop there and ask, does anybody have questions? And Travis, just help me keep track of time. Any questions? We do have a couple hands. Okay. Uh, Nona, you may unmute. Yes, hi, um, uh, Ron, thank you. Um, I have a question about expedited eligibility. Um, mm -hmm. um, I was told because I utilized the expedited eligibility um, um, option, um, but our ADA coordinator said we could only utilize that one time. And that was according to her interpretation of ADA law. So I'm just wondering, is that is that doesn't sound correct to me. Um, Let me and ask is you that, yes. a couple couple questions. When you say you used it, yes. is it for your first eligibility certification? No. No. Um, no, no. And her, her, the ADA doesn't require expedited eligibility, but it also doesn't prohibit it. So that's a local interpretation. It's not based in the law. Okay. So okay. it would be something that we could probably um, maybe have a discussion with her. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's definitely a local transit agency decision. Okay. Okay. All right, Thank Kenny, you. you are next. Send you another request. All right, we'll move on. 510 ending in 814. You may unmute. Couple phone numbers here, whichever gets to it first. And those are only two hands right now. Okay. All right. Ron, oh, Ron hello. Uh, Ron, thank you very much for the presentation. Can you talk a little bit more about the basis for 
and the possible flexibility to the 21-day visitor eligibility time limitation. So the only flexibility is if a local transit agency chooses to do more. The law and the guidance is very specific. It's 21 non-consecutive days within a 365-day period. So that's what the law requires, and it doesn't require more than that. Some agencies do provide more here in Phoenix. We provide 30 days, um, but, but other agencies may do something different. But the law itself only requires 21. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, 407-379, I think is the phone number. Four zero seven. That sounds like Orlando. Yeah, four zero seven three seven nine. Going once, twice. Oh, okay. Oh, there we go. That was a there bit. Of, that was a bit of a process there, but I'm in. Hi, this is uh, Kathy Matthews, and yes, I live in Central Florida. So, um, and I, I know Bill Herndon too. Um, this may not be appropriate for this time, but I don't know if there's ever a time to really discuss it. So I'm bringing it up, Ron. Um, I'm a systems engineer by trade, um, worked with contracts and government uh, coordination kind of things. And I worked a few years ago with Links in Orlando, trying to get them to rewrite the contract for paratransit. Because in my personal opinion, we are paying paratransit not for giving good rides or reasonable rides or timely rides or quality rides. We're paying them to drive around. And I'm not blaming the drivers for this. That's not the thing. But there's no incentive for these companies to be efficient in how they assign rides and mm -hmm. alter rides and update rides. And okay. so I, I, I rewrote their, they gave me a copy of their contract under FOIA. I rewrote it. I made it um, performance-based. I did a performance evaluation plan for them so they could do it. And they were all in until they had to do it. And then they just said, I don't know. And every time I've ever talked to anybody that works in paratransit, they say, you know, it's too hard. We can't make it any different. But, you know, Uber gives rides for less than 45 or 65 or $85 a trip, which sometimes that works out in our area. So I, I would just like some insight or some help to figure out how we help them help us because my, the yeah. bottom line at the end of the day, I feel like right now everybody accepts that it's bad. Everybody knows that it's bad. And as long as you don't make it worse, you're, not making it worse. So don't try anything new because for God's sakes, if it gets worse for it, it's better. It's going to be your head on a stake. So I, I don't know. I just, I want to throw that what? out there somewhere yep. along the way. Somebody might help me. <laughs> well, what I'm going to encourage you to do is we, we did a show about two months ago on on-demand paratransit. And if you, if you were there, then you heard it. And if you're not there, check that out. And Okay. Because we, we talked specifically about the fact, um, and now there's a study, it's a published study done by the uh, Transportation Research Board, which is, an, uh, which is a division of the National Science Foundation that was specifically focused on how to implement on-demand paratransit. And 
you know, part of the challenge is the law is written the way the law is written. And we're not, it's not probably the right time culturally and, and politically to try to change the law. But, but, but agencies are allowed to do more than the law requires. So I would encourage you to check out that show. Uh, and, okay. uh, you know, it, I'm sure it's a topic we will come back to again. Um, but at the end of the day, local transit agencies, not the federal government, decides how local paratransit gets delivered. So the issues that you have are valid, but they're really issues that have to be addressed at your local transit level because there's nothing in federal law, in enforcement, uh, or in funding that is designed to address the problem that you're raising. And we can talk all day long about how broken government is, and you don't right. have to look at paratransit. You can look at 50, 100 other areas gotcha. um, to see yeah. how broken government but, is. Just one more example. But I will say... Yeah. Yeah, I will say I talked to the mayor. The mayor supported me. The mayor um, encouraged the CEO to listen to me. The CEO did. Got put me in touch with the gentleman in charge of paratransit. The gentleman in charge of paratransit was very nice to work with. But uh, five minutes. You know, they got. Thank you. Okay, I'm done. Sorry. Thank you, Rob. No, it's good. I, I hear you. It's frustrating. I mean, I spent my whole career in it. And uh, there are times where yeah, I, I know. You know, sort of feel like you beat your head against the wall, but we are making progress. and. We're going to keep working at it until we get it right. It may take a minute. Um, we got time yeah. for one more question. All right, Kenny, are you able to unmute? We'll try you one more time. Send you another request here. Oh, it looks like our last. Yes, Travis, can. Sorry about that. Okay, Ron, there you are. You doing this evening? I, I was just going to make a comment on the visitor status in um, other cities and states. But you kind of answered it already because I was, I was just going to make the comment because a lot of people do not know about that. But when you do um, calling and you are eligible you, to use the visitor status in every state, you have to be very specific on how long you are going to be there. If you're only going to be there for four days, you need to let them know that. So when you go back to that state, you have, you know, X amount of days left because if you don't do that, they'll, they'll just run your 21 days out without you even being there. So I was just going to make a comment on well, that. Well, actually, Sorry, I'm going I'm to. It's all good, but I'm going to clarify that. So the law, the guidance from FTA, is very specific. It's not that you're in town for 21 days. It's 21 non-consecutive days of using paratransit. So if you are in a town for a month and you use paratransit on two of those days, you have 19 days left. So it doesn't matter how long you're there. It matters how much you used. And this is something that... Um, I'm not arguing that you should, because they will ask you, they'll say, how long are you going to be in town? And you can tell them, but legally you have 21 days of use of service. So keep that in mind. Uh, that actually stretches out. I've been to Richmond, Virginia, because I go there quarterly. I've been there, uh, you know, three, four times, all on the same bucket of 21 days of eligibility, because I don't use it every day that I'm there. Um, and I don't stay that long. So um, yeah, you can kind of stretch that out and, and use it over the course of the whole year. 
So um, I want to just, um, we're going to, I think we are, don't have time for more questions right now. I want to just share with you um, a couple of resources that are there. Um, this call is going to end. It's recorded. Uh, I am going to uh, send that recording over to uh, ACB, um, to the folks who put those together. They will turn it into a podcast. It'll be posted to the ACB Media podcast page. I will also send out a post call note. I typically post those to uh, to the ACB community group on Facebook. I post it on the ACB conversation list. And if you are on the Accessible Avenue email communication list, you get your own copy right to your inbox that will have uh, a summary of this call, a link to the podcast, and it'll have additional resources. And tonight, the additional resource is uh, chapter nine, or it's actually, it'll probably be the whole document, the uh, entire ADA, uh, trans, uh, par uh, ADA transportation circular that was published in 2015. It is, it is long, uh, but it is a treasure trove of information, including everything that we talked about tonight. So it is worth having. It's free. Uh, so check it out. And if you would like to check out other resources on the Accessible Avenue website, we have a resources section. Uh, you can go look at that. We've got a couple of things that you can have for free. Um, you just have to you know, give us your name and then we'll send those to you and, and hopefully those will be useful. Uh, and you know, they are complaint and commendation forms for transportation uh, and also uh, some guidance on how to build a really good service animal policy. And those of us who use service animals and guide dogs, we know that our agencies need help uh, doing that the right way. So those are free for the taking. Invite you to come check it out. And uh, we'll do this call again next month. I'm not sure what the topic is yet, uh, but we meet the third Wednesday of each month at this same time, 9 Eastern, 6 Pacific. And um, I really appreciate you here. I'm, I appreciate Travis for hosting. I appreciate Kayla for handling business and clubhouse. I appreciate Herbie for streaming. And I appreciate all of you all for being here and for listening in and participating. And that concludes our call. Have a nice evening.